Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. To Reasonable Doubts, the radio show and podcast for those who won't just take things on faith. Coming to you from Grand Rapids, Michigan, which has announced its resignation as the clasp on America's Bible bra and will live out the rest of its years in quiet contemplation. You can find us online at doubtcast.org or freethoughtblogs.com slash reasonable doubts. You can listen to us on Public Reality Radio, WPRR, Ada, Grand Rapids, and W237CZ Hudsonville, 1680 AM and 95.3 FM, and streaming at publicrealityradio.org. My name is Dave Fletcher. With me in the studio are my fellow Doubtcasters, Mr. Jeremy Bean. Hello, everyone. Teen pop sensation Justin Schieber. Hello. And Dr. Professor Luke Galen. Hello. There's been remarkably little religion-based news in the last couple of weeks, so I dug up this little story that's not getting a ton of press, which is uh, apparently Pope Benedict XVI oh. is resigning. Oh, you king of obscurity. Did, Who did cares you catch about this, that? guys? <laughs> of course, he announced this the day after we recorded our previous episode because yeah. he had to get one last shot at us. I got up that morning. It was like 6.30 that morning, and already my inbox was full of people being like, have you seen this? Have you seen this? They have finished like, in the oh, studio, God. so we must announce it today. See, I panicked because um, when I turned on the news, I heard bad news about Benedict, and I thought the third season of Sherlock might be delayed again. And uh, <laughs> oh, boy. That's a Cumberbatch joke, yeah, is it Yeah, not? it is. It sure is. Um, no, we have um, the final days. In fact, by the time people are hearing this, um, if it's after February 28th, uh, Pope Benedict the 16th will be back to being good old Joey Rats, um, no longer with his papal hat. And uh, this is kind of a big deal for a lot of reasons. But let's start off just talking about um, the reasons that he gave for his resignation. Well, yeah. I mean, first of all, this, according to all these Vatican spokesmen, this came as a complete shock. It's not as if Ratzinger had never brought up before the possibility of resigning. Right. He had mentioned it last um, year um, already, but he but he did not consult with anyone before idea, he made this announcement. Yeah, the idea that he would actually go through with it, uh, the fact that he did, and the moment mm-hmm. that he did, uh, a lot of it seems that this caught a lot of people off guard. Yeah, apparently it was at a tail end of one of their big mm-hmm. meetings, and uh, then, yeah, as the last thing kind of said, he's he tried like, to bur- I'm to out. bury the lead. <laughs> he dropped the microphone and walked back out of the room. And you're like, whoa. You're not going to have Joey Rats to kick around anymore. <laughs> His uh, reasons for leaving are um, – to quote him, he said, "Before God, I have come to the to the certainty that my strengths, due to advanced age, are no longer suited and adequate for the exercise. In today's world, subject to so many rapid changes and shaken by questions of deep relevance for the life of the faith, in order to govern the bark of Saint Peter and proclaim the gospel, both strength of mind and body are necessary. Strength, which in the last few months has deteriorated in me to the extent that I have had to recognize my incapacity." capacity to adequately fulfill the ministry entrusted to me. 
Uh, yada, yada, which yada. Didn't He's stop, really old. Yeah, which hasn't stopped any of the popes <laughs> before him. I mean, well, right. John Paul II before him was in very poor health for a very long time, uh, physically. Uh, Are you suggesting rats as a wimp? Eh, he's, he seems like a little bit of a wimp in this, I have to say. <laughs> and I don't find this incredibly implausible. I'm mm-hmm. sure there's more going on, but... Uh, he is, um, he's 85 years old. Right. So He has been showing guy. signs of age. He's been dozing off at masses. <laughs> During the Christmas mass, they've I been, Yeah, they've been wheeling We've him up. we more on. in common with him than we thought. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's like 80, he's now 85 and he's doing stuff that I do right now. You know, it's <laughs> like, he comes out on the lawn and yells at kids on the on the Vatican lawn, get off of my lawn. Get off of my priests. <laughs> um, oh. uh, they've had to wheel him out on a platform and, mm-hmm. and look, you know, Ratzinger... Tent was so close to John Paul. It's it's not inconceivable to me that he's watching this, you know, this old guy who's more dead than alive up there on the stage forever, completely unable to execute any of the duties of his office. And mm-hmm. maybe he's just saying, "Hey, look, it's time to break with tradition." That's how some are trying to spin this. He's there. Yeah. There's been this kind of taboo for the past what six hundred, seven hundred years against a pope resigning. Maybe he's trying to set a precedent for later popes to, that, you know what, when you're frail, when you're aging, and it's time to get out of there, get out of there. But that definitely sets a big precedent. And, and Benedict, we should note, is not a big uh, a guy to make waves. He's very conservative. He's trying to keep things as they have been. So it's weird for him to make this pretty radical move as his final act is to – Really, what what some people are saying is to change the face of the papacy forever by doing this. Yeah, it it does seem a little out of character. Of course, there are other speculations as to why he might be leaving. We'll look at those in a moment. What's he going to do once he's no longer pope? I mean, this is something uh, the church hasn't had to deal with in In, over half a millennia. Yes. The idea right now is that the uh, Vatican officials and – Again, I have to pull this from different news articles I'm reading. I don't know exactly how the internal politics of the Vatican work, but they're making it sound like Vatican officials decided for Ratzinger that, where he's going to go. That was the impression that I got too. Yeah, was, and they're deciding he's going to live in a convent. In uh, the Vatican. In the Vatican itself. They had three primary – according to Reuters, there were three reasons why they chose mm-hmm. a convent in the Vatican. One is that uh, the Vatican forces can then – uh, provide security. They already know his customs, habits, everything else. You don't have to pay some expensive uh, foreign detail uh, of bodyguards they, and that sort of thing. They compare it to in America when presidents are no longer presidents, they still retain secret service. Right. The secret service knows how to take care of them, so they just There's keep plenty doing of it. people out there who would want to take out a pope. So. Especially this guy. So they're concerned about security. Uh, mm-hmm. Another reason is – this. I thought this was interesting – Concerned that if he were to go off and hang out in a monastery somewhere in Germany, for example, mm-hmm. his new place of residence could become a center for pilgrimage. Yes. Especially mm. since he was, you know, as you mentioned before, he was a really reactionary pope. He was trying mm-hmm. to turn back the clock on a lot of reforms. Right. What if the next pope to come in has a more liberalizing bent? Mm-hmm. Could this create schism? Could you have uh, conservatives wishing for the good old days, making pilgrimage to 
Ratzinger's uh, house of residence, which and, they w- point out is still still potentially an issue with him in the Vatican. Is you right. have you have the conservatives if they you know if the new pope is less conservative, does things that they don't like. Are they going to then go to Ratzinger and say, "Look, right. you got you got to say something to this guy"? Or and it, it's not inconceivable that you could see such schisms happening. We we already know about the fundamentalist Catholic offshoots that adhere only to the Vatican One Council. I don't think there right. is any real historical precedent for religious schisms, though. No, no, that doesn't happen, <laughs> in especially the, no. in regards to the no. Catholic Church. The Catholic Church has never <laughs> had a schism ever. Yeah. Although he he does not seem to be – it's not like he's breaking away because he is uh, has any issues with the Catholic Church. Right. It, there's no suggestion that he's – No, maybe Ratzinger is going to keep his it, mouth shut. The, he's going to be quiet going for to, the yeah. rest of he's his not the life. Type He's not the type of guy to galvanize a major movement anyways. <laughs> so so uh, this, this conclave that's supposed to elect the new pope, apparently mm-hmm. a lot of the members of the conclave uh, were chosen by Ratzinger. Mm-hmm. So they're going to be uh, – Either him or the previ- or John Paul. Yes. Yeah, so yeah. Because which, they were, which combined, they were very conservative. You know. So there, there really isn't, I don't think, much good, re- much good reason to have much hope in that it's going to be a less conservative – um, right. We're, we're not going to get um, the your local Catholic priest who's, you know, cool with the gays and, right. you know, all of that. That's just – and is willing to accept that some people use birth control. That's not going to happen. There is we're a going possibility. To get Unlike the vast majority of, of Catholics. Yeah, exactly. There is a possibility, though, that we will get a pope from somewhere other than Europe. Mm-hmm. That's true. A lot of talk has been given to, uh, to Brazil uh, as a – as a possible place to look for a new pope because it's has one of the largest Catholic populations. I believe it has out the there. largest Catholic yeah. population. Um, 133 million Catholics. And they're also experiencing – I mean Latin America uh, and South America are definitely places where the church is on the rise. One of the few places. In- I, I think kind of the only place right now where the church is really – Making any kind of um, the thing is well, a lot of that. A lot of that stuff is like Catholicism with a mix of like their local kind of. Um, yeah, it's it's not Roman Catholicism. Yeah, it's not really in orthodox. The syncretic, sense. yes, synchronistic mm-hmm. elements. Um, we we like the Virgin Mary too, and our local and our local Mayan goddess. Yeah, but uh, what what they're having a problem with is Protestantism is making mm-hmm. waves in these areas. Same issue in Africa. Uh, Protestant, you know, American style. Charismatic um, and charismatic, Pentecostal. Yeah, mm-hmm. Pentecostal. It's yeah. funner. They have the music and the tongues and the healings. It's just not just it, your run-of-the-mill stand-up, sit-down Yeah, stuff. it's, it's yeah, a, a riot of, compared to burning incense and right. chanting. And it, it connects a lot more with uh, South American culture when you have, you know, yeah. uh, more active participation in the services. And demons everywhere. And demons, <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Conga drumming mm-hmm. and all that. So, yeah, the idea is elect a Brazilian. Not only do you have, uh, you know, a pope from a growing region where Catholicism right. is somewhat vital or rather has vitality, uh, but also you might stem the tide of, of Protestantism mm-hmm. as a point of oh. pride uh, yeah. Brazilians say, saying, "Look, we are the Pope is from our nation," yeah. um, so that's possible. Anyways, back to what we were talking about before. The the third, the final reason why that Reuters cites why Ratzinger might be staying in the Vatican is legal concerns. 
He wants to avoid prosecution. The Vatican is a sovereign state. There were a series of pacts that were made between the Italian government and the Vatican in 1929 that set up the Vatican as a as a as a sovereign state. And in fact, Vatican officials can even kind of leave and you know have a little vacation in Italy. Right. When, and when still not, have that when he's immunity. not in the leadership, though, does it, does the diplomatic immunity still hold? They, they are does for a number of titles. They okay. will extend his diplomatic immunity. I uh, don't know how comprehensive right. that immunity is, but uh, but yes, and uh, I mean that's why so far there have been attempts to subpoena the Pope. Mm-hmm. Richard uh, Dawkins, famously, we talked about this right, on the show, right? Yeah, and Hitch for that, and mm-hmm. Hitch also funded uh, uh, some lawyers looking into how this might be done. The abuse victims in in the Milwaukee archdiocese mm-hmm. they they uh, one of their court battles named the Pope as a witness. Mm-hmm. There's never been any hope of those going through because no. he's considered a sovereign head of state. This is he's he's considered the monarch, the leader of, of Vatican State. Vatican state. Mm-hmm. You know, there might be a way to get around that that political immunity there's been talk about you know uh, petitioning un the un's international criminal court and calling his crimes crimes against humanity because mm-hmm. he's enabled the cover up of child abuse mm-hmm. then he could possibly be prosecuted under international law now of course the icc hasn't ever taken up that or made any right. kind of comment it's too politically scandalous you know i i don't count on that going through so I, obviously, political immunity is a good thing. It's uh, we have Vatican spokesmen themselves saying this is one reason to keep him in the Vatican. So it's not a ridiculous conspiracy theory mm-hmm. to oh, right. to say that's part of the rationale. Right. That's a real concern. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, realistically, I've seen some of these internet articles claiming like you know the Pope, if he were to leave the Vatican, he'd be you know immediately like seized and brought to justice. Julian for, Assange in yeah. the uh, embassy there, as soon as he steps out, they're going to jump on him. Right. It's it's, it's not, not going quite to that scenario. Right. Yeah. I wish it would. I mean, I think this oh, guy sure. is guilty of not directly of child abuse. He didn't abuse any children himself. At least no one's claiming he has. But he certainly turned a blind eye um, when he was in a position to do something to stop it. Yeah. Uh, plenty of cases of gross negligence where uh, where documents were on his desk and uh, and he still didn't do anything about but, these But we can't get priests. most priests prosecuted for this. We're certainly not going to get the former pope prosecuted right. for something like this. It's, it, it's just not going to happen. So, of course, there's been all this talk about what are the real reasons for the pope resigning. He mm. says age. Come on. What's the real reason? Obviously, we know that the Vatican has been in scandal for the past several years. Well, he's been in office since 2005 and pretty much his whole reign as pope has been marked by scandal. Mm-hmm. I mean, the the child abuse being the major takeaway from from this papal administration. A more recent article that popped up just this past week was um the pope might be trying to avoid a uh, some sort of gay scandal. Ooh, not, yeah, I know. sounds sexy. Yeah, not not that the Pope himself is gay or anything as juicy as that, no. but um, 
If you remember the the Vata leaks scandal, mm-hmm. which by the way I just hate that. Let's you know we already have gate, gate yeah you exactly, know, and, we and all that stuff. Quit putting gate on things yeah. and quit putting leaks, leaks after on everything. Uh, it sounds also like a condition that someone might have to. <laughs> right, 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 right. I've got the Vata leaks. <laughs> Where the post butler yes. leaked information, right? Yeah, all, all these the documents, and uh, you know, saying that there were things like uh, gay prostitution ranks mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. I mean, there, there was previous evidence to come out to show that there, you know, there were indeed some high-ranking Vatican officials who were caught on um, investigators' wires, petitioning people for sex or trying to mm-hmm. trying to secure prostitutes for. Uh, high-ranking priests within the Vatican. So there's already a, a good amount of evidence and yes. even some people in jail over this. But the the mm. Italian newspaper La Repubblica has claimed that his decision to retire uh, was premeditated uh, quite far in advance. And in December 17th was when he made the decision. And this was shortly after he received a dossier that was compiled by three cardinals to look into all of these documents from the Vata leaks mm-hmm. affair, and uh, that well, the way the Italian newspaper describes it as two volumes of almost three hundred pages, bound in red, that they are at the moment consigned to a safe in the papal apartments and will be delivered to the Pope's successor upon his election. <laughs> Enter Dan Brown's new novel. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it details a number of factions within the Vatican. Uh, some who are, quote, united by sexual orientation. <laughs> I love that. Sexy. And uh, I, I, I love how, yeah, to play on the Dan Brown conspiracy theme, it's, <laughs> everything's even kind of worded euphemistically. Yeah. Too, I like right? the bound and red. Yeah, like yeah. That. The Vatican officials have been subject to, quote, external influence from laymen with whom they've had links of a, quote, worldly nature. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I saw this one. It's Ewan McGregor, isn't it? (laughs) I don't know. What do we say about this? I I, obviously the guy's got to get to be pretty sick and fed up right now of having to defend his own church uh, (laughs) and deal with all the infighting and factions and BS that's going on. But it does seem to me like a little overly dramatic or more fit for cinema Mm -hmm. to picture the Pope, you know, sitting down to his desk. Opening up the report, looking down, and then taking off his glasses while shaking, you know, and looking forward. I must resign. I just see him like Danny Glover in, in Lethal As Weapon. The tears smash. I'm getting the too old for this shit. I think that's, <laughs> I think that's the real sense of what's going I on. I want here. to go back and read my books. <laughs> I'm tired of this. Yeah. yeah, I don't. Know. It, it does seem very fanciful to me. And like in the article um, that references the. The quote, external influence in the worldly nature. Mm-hmm. Uh, these, it says apparent quotation. Like, what is, what exactly does that yeah, mean? Yeah, because that, we don't actually have the documents right. that they are it doesn't apparently appear that quoted. anybody had right. these documents, right. really. Well, they're locked up in a vault for the Pope's successor, who I'm right. sure will get right so on we're, that. So we're getting these so, probably from word of mouth of, yeah. of people who are advancing I mean, some there kind is, of interesting I there idea. is a report of some sort. That much has been confirmed. Certainly. The okay. Vatican hasn't confirmed or denied anything in this Reuters article, but mm-hmm. the idea that there is a rep- there was an investigation by this panel of cardinals, cardinals, and that they did produce a report that was disturbing, is out there. That's mm-hmm. real. But the idea that uh, the Pope resigned the because day he that, got that report yeah. and that was his reason, 
I mean, we just we can't go to uh, the yeah, source it, to see to see so many bad things who could happening. possibly know this. There's so many like breaking news of terrible things happening about the Vatican. It's on like, a daily basis. You could play yeah. any time that like, oh, this was the one that right. that made him resign. It's like you just take the yeah. pick of the litter. Yeah, yeah. I I think. It, and honestly, according to Wikipedia, at least, he is in the top ten of oldest popes um, at the time of the end of his papacy. So he is an older guy. There's certainly popes that have served older. There's certainly popes that have been physically and mentally enfeebled uh, that have served for a long time. But um, I'm sorry. Did you just say he was top ten? He's top ten of the oldest That was popes. a list, man. That, that was, was a on, list. I saw that on David Letterman. The other yeah. <laughs> yes. The no, top he's, ten old popes. I want to say he's like number five or so of the top ten oldest popes at the, the time of their usually deaths because most of them die in office. Um, but by the way, with uh, um, the pope stepping down – from a lifetime appointment office. I just think maybe um, the United States Supreme Court should be paying attention to this and perhaps uh, uh, Alito Scalia could take a hint and just say, you know, I don't have to wait it out. Well, Thomas does do some of the same things that the Pope does. He not, looks like he's apparently nodding off or leans back and he's <laughs> staring at the ceiling. And and he just – I don't know if you guys follow him. Clarence Thomas made the first verbal utterance that's I, been documented that. since like 2006 and yes. it was – he started to chime in on a joke about Yale people, like the council was arguing about, well, like a Yale person. And he's like, yes, it's – and there was like three words and, and that was it. Was from the were, onion or something? I thought you were going to say – No, that's, uh, that's actually true. I thought you were going to say Scalia is right was his uh, – <laughs> He doesn't even but, need to uh, say it. One of the big questions that uh, uh, people have about, okay, so the Pope is stepping down. The Pope is supposed to be infallible, right? right? The infallible head of the Catholic Church. He's still alive, so someone else takes over, gets that infallibility. What happens with uh, Ratzinger? What does his name become? Because he's no longer Pope Benedict the Sixteenth. He go back to being um, Joey Rats, the ratsiest of the rats. And when it comes, Pope, Pope Emeritus, <laughs> um, ex Pope, um, ex Benedict. Um, when the, it comes the, uh, to <laughs> the the post Pope. The the clergy formerly known as the Pope. We could give them a little symbol. Yeah, yeah. We could only speculate what that symbol might look like. But um, as far as his name goes, I I assume, and I, I couldn't actually find anything answering this question, I assume he goes back to being Joseph Ratzinger, probably cardinal, or he'll retain some kind of um, title within the church, but uh, no longer Pope. He's going to... Um, Join a monastery, right? Mm. Um, but the question of infallibility is an interesting one, and it's one that I think, um, in a lot of ways, people exaggerate. I, I found this too. There were a number of articles out there. Right? Uh, what happens when the pope when the pope retires? Is mm. he still infallible? Uh, that was a headline in the New York Times, and a yes. lot of talk about how this is going to be a major embarrassment for the whole doctrine of infallibility, right? Because how can you go from being infallible to suddenly – just a guy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, I, I, I think this is exaggerated too, Dave, because my understanding of the whole papal infallibility doctrine is not that it's some sort of superpower of the pope. You know, right. Once he gets that office, God gives him super insight into the thinking of 
of you know into the thinking of heaven. It's more of a responsibility that comes with the office. When we say that the Pope is infallible, we certainly don't mean that. But even the Catholic Church does not mean that he's perfect or that right. everything he says is perfect. Right, he right. is only infallible. What is it? Um, ex cathedra. Ex cathedra. It, it says here uh, he's preserved from the possibility of error when in the exercise of his office as shepherd and teacher of all Christians in virtue of his supreme apostolic authority, he defines a doctrine concerning faith or morals to be held by the whole church. Yes. Right. So he has to evoke. In that specific infant, kind of yes. circumstance, then he's preserved from error. And he, here's, here's yeah. the thing. Is that ex cathedra position, What what is that, from the church? Something like that. When he's speaking in in those terms, he is infallible. Now, that is um, that idea of papal infallibility came about in um, the 1800s. It's right. a very recent idea, and it's only been invoked twice. The idea, since yeah, then. the um, idea has been around since forever, but, yeah, but it wasn't really but, it wasn't really codified into right. canon law until the 1800s. You're right. And uh, and yeah, it's only been used twice. It was used once by what Pope Pius the Ninth, yep. um, immaculate to, conception of Mary, which and, that Mary was born without original sin. And then in 1950, most recent time it was used was um, Pius the Twelfth, who said um, the doctrine of the Assumption of the Virgin, which is the idea that Mary went up to heaven body and soul. So the yeah, idea is that's a complete assumption with no was, evidence behind it. it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes, that's exactly what it it's is. It's more like, yes, she was assumed or absorbed into the heavenly ether right. instead of dying. Uh, and that's that's it. I mean, literally yeah. the two times it's been used have been about either the beginning of Mary's life or the end of Mary's life. So Ratzinger never evoked papal Never infallibility. Never used it, and obviously he yeah. won't be able to So, so we can't run up to uh, the Pope and, and yell out a complicated math problem, and then when they stutter, be like, ah, <laughs> oh, you're wrong! <laughs> God is alive! Who's infallible now? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, yeah no. that's, uh, so I think He's it's like, really uh, blown out two, of proportion. It's the authority of the office. Uh, yes. the, I, I get, again, uh, Catholics might want to set me straight on this. Um, I had mostly a Protestant education, but mm. my understanding is, you know, this is rooted in Peter being called the rock of the church. Yes. Uh, Jesus says that he's going to give Peter the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever he binds on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever he loosens on earth will be loosened in heaven. In other words, it's almost like it's almost like the heavenly government is contracted for an earthly representative mm-hmm. and has said, mm-hmm. like, you know, you know, you get to write some of these rules too. Uh, you know, you wear the hat, you stand on the balcony in the right way, and say the magic right, words, right. and and we'll, uh, you know, we'll write that into our contracts up yes. here. So it's not. Uh, it's uh, the second he leaves office, even according to their own theological understanding, he's going to lose his infallibility. Right. And, and, you know, some people speculate, well, what if he were to, you know, when he's out of office, he would write something that would contradict um, centuries of church teaching, like, hey, by the way, abortion's cool. Um, what would that mean for the church? It would mean nothing. It would right. mean right. this one, it, the opinion of one man. And odds are the pope that he would be fighting with wouldn't be evoking this as infallible no. either. It would, right. it would be treated right. as an yes. opinion, a dispute amongst – yeah. Yeah, and theologically, it really is is very easy for the Catholic Church because it doesn't mean – once he's out, but I think uh, psychologically, this will uh, present some issues for Catholic people who go, 
Yeah, but this was the Pope. This was the guy who's, you know, appointed by God. Suddenly it makes the office something much more mortal, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Something that, you know, and they had this 600 years ago, but it's been 600 years since they've had to address this situation. And I really think it will – I I think in a lot of ways it takes away some of that uh, divine right perhaps, uh, of the papacy. Yeah, uh, there's, there's a good quote um, by uh, Rowan Williams, who's the... Uh, Archbishop of um, something. Yeah, Canterbury. Yeah. Yes. That's Former Archbishop of Canterbury, yeah. I believe. Uh, he said, um, Benedict actually, by resigning, has introduced some cracks into the infallibility doctrine. It's bound to relativize the doctrine. Mm. And that's the reality hitting the Roman Catholic Church. This is actually how doctrine has been promulgated, Mm -hmm. uh, the result of accidents, unexpected results, contingencies, context, and things that aren't said. That's how things have been in Christianity right from the start, which he's very correct (laughs) in saying that. And so, yeah, this that that might – Maybe raise awareness of the haphazard nature in which, in which doctrine is formed to believers who are uh, Catholics who maybe aren't so familiar with how these doctrines work out, which, according to Pew polls, are you know Catholics, (laughs) (laughs) the subset of Catholics who don't understand how the church operates includes all Catholics, right? Right, (laughs) including most of their clergy. Some sort of weird uh, uh, barber's paradox there. Yeah. That's the end of Joseph Ratzinger as the Pope. He, uh, Benedict the Sixteenth, will be no more um, by February twenty eighth of twenty thirteen. It's yeah. all over. But we can't let him go. That and then easily. a year from now, he'll be standing in front of his mirror in his uh, in his <laughs> strange little domicile, making self portraits. Yeah, wearing a Burger King a Burger King crown and with a, with a trash bag as a cape, and he'll be yes. a little, small tear, single tear, rippling down the wrinkles of his he's, face. He's like King Lear after giving up his kingdom to his children. He's going to wander around, no one's going to take him in, and eventually he'll go crazy and die. See, I'm the only one who uh, thought you were making a George Bush reference at first. Yeah, have you seen that? Have you seen that? His uh, no. paintings? No. no. Oh, oh, I yeah. did hear about this, so, though. Yeah, some, I, uh, I have. It has nothing to do with George the show, w. but Bush i got to mention this. Yeah, they're yeah. leaking Bush's self-portraits, and they're really freaking depressing, too. Oh they're, like him, they're like him laying in a bathtub with his, like, staring at his feet and stuff. It's, it's terrible. Well, I, for one, want to defend. Uh, here, I thought he was a man without much depth, and it turns out he has a poet's soul. And I think that's, <laughs> and I think that's beautiful. Okay, I'm going to say it. Uh, um, but of course we, we can't, we have to give Benedict a proper send off here. So Jeremy, you've compiled some of the, uh, best and worst quotes of Pope Benedict. Oh, uh, right? not quotes, but well, uh, so yes, I have, uh, here, uh, Ratzinger in review, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And just as an aside, I are, I have my dream theme music for this, but I know I'll never be able to find it. But I wanted the good, the bad, and the ugly theme mixed with a kind of Gregorian chant like that. <laughs> that would be oh. – That would have been Note perfect. For it. Note to ambitious <laughs> – I cannot believe that doesn't exist. Note to ambitious listeners who have some experience and a lot of time on their hands. <laughs> yeah. uh, we can retroactively edit it into the episode like uh, George Lucas or something. <laughs> uh, yeah, I figured we'd survey some of the things that's made Ratzinger such a, a popular – topic of conversation on the show. 
why don't we start with the positive, right? He is a real person, uh, and uh, he, he may have done some good for the church and the world. So we'll look at some positive things here. One thing, and obviously this is all through the lens of my personal opinion, uh, you may think some of these good things are bad or vice versa, but uh, I think uh, one thing is that the Ratzinger did, especially towards the end of his end of his ministry, he did try to outreach to various different Christian populations that had been on the margins from the Catholic Church. He, for example, uh, opened up communication with uh, the Eastern with Eastern Orthodox Christians and uh, lightened some of the tensions, the you know centuries old t- tensions there. That's always a good thing, I think, pushing pushing people in the direction of uh, uh, tolerance and and ecumenicism. ecumenicism. Yeah, and and really, when I think Pope Benedict, I think tolerance. Yeah, yeah, I know it's not the first thing. Well, you know, come on, I'm, I'm trying to. You yeah, know, I, I know. I'm trying I to know. attempt at a balanced look at things. I, I appreciate the attempt. Uh, I guess you could say a little bit of outreach to the Muslim world, though. Again, has mm-hmm. to be qualified. It was after he made some really ridiculous statements publicly about yeah. how evil Muslims are that there was a public backlash and forced him. Basically, to reach out to Muslims, but hey, but he did. He could have just said, "Hey, I'm the Pope," and na 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 na. <laughs> he did uh, try to uh, open up a little bit of interfaith dialogue with uh, with Islam. I personally admire that he made uh, some bold statements and even fashion some, statements. Yes, yes, with his Prada I, shoes. You, you and, know, yeah, yeah, yeah. looking. Fancy down there, or, or he has a good appreciation of uh, half-naked men doing gymnastics, as we've yes, seen in different true. videos. I was going to say uh, he's made some statements against, you know, rabid capitalism. You know, for a conservative pope, actually, when it comes to economic issues, he seems quite progressive. Right. Um, for example, in 2009, he released his book Charity and Truth. He called for radical rethinking of the global economy. And said uh, that there's a major problem with this growing divide between uh, wealthy people and the poor, that it wasn't really good for anything. And he even recommended – I mean this is this is the stuff conspiracy theories are made of on the right. Mm-hmm. Uh, he even recommended that we should have a, quote, true world political authority that could oversee the economy and make sure that it worked for the common good. And he marched with Occupy Vatican. Not true. Occupy Vatican. Sketch idea. <laughs> he said things in that book uh, to the effect of um, – he said the current economic system is one where, quote, uh, the pernicious effects of sin are evident, urged financiers – this is coming from the New York Times uh, review of, of Ratzinger's career – urged financiers to rediscover a genuinely ethical foundation for that activity. Uh, and he also called out for greater social responsibility on the part of business owners. Um talking about the evils of profit becoming an exclusive goal. So definitely to conservatives in the church, that was a message that needed to be hear, heard in my opinion, and mm. I think that's that's good. I agree. Uh, another thing, the last thing I'll mention on the good list, Benedict retracted his position on condoms, uh, at least at con- the acceptability of using condoms as uh, in Africa. In a very sm- very small, very specific instances. Yeah, yeah. but uh, yes, I, he wasn't... And not so much birth control as, as it was homosexual He, he didn't go far enough, but if you look yeah. at the church's historical position, he said, you know, it's, it's really the first... It's not that he said it was okay. Right. 
He said it's the first step of being responsible mm-hmm. to actually use a condom for people who are infected with HIV. Yes. Uh, and he included in that statement whether it's a man or a woman or a transsexual. So he's basically mm-hmm. saying, look, if you know, if you're gay, which sometimes I think they don't even want to acknowledge that. Right. <laughs> If you're gay and, you know, and there's a chance of spreading disease, right, you, you need to wear a condom. It's the moral thing to do. It, or rather, it's the less immoral right. of the two options. It's the first step of yeah. responsibility. Yeah. It's getting us in that direction. Again, not far enough and a, it's, it's a little late. I wish that would have been their position earlier than November of 2010. But right. nevertheless, huge, huge uh, step in the right direction. All right. The bad. <laughs> well, uh, to be fair, there's there's something else. Apparently, uh, during his his papacy, he's expressed a firm. What does it say here? A firm resolve to clean up the sex abuse and quote filth, he, as he called it, within the Catholic Church. Um, yeah, that but I think as many people have seen, he's he may have said that, but that doesn't seem to be. It, uh, yeah, I didn't include that in my good list because that's – Because it wasn't actually acted upon. It didn't actually yes. happen. But well, they were right. nice words. And, sure. Well, so. and some of the things that were acted on are, are you know, things like more active screening to get homosexuals out of the clergy. Right. You that know, that you was know, the way to keep stuff, down child yeah. molestation. It, yeah. yeah. Policing, policing uh, priests for their radical uh, their radical views that they've taken from Western secularism mm-hmm. and, and the sexual revolution and that sort of thing. He really just, in trying to combat this issue, he, there wasn't any kind of concern for the real causes behind it. No. It was just pegging more of the traditional targets. Mm-hmm. Um, but but yeah, demons. Uh, according fact. to some, he was a uh, he was a hero in that area. We'll talk about why that isn't true in a in a little bit. But uh, some more uh, so, some of the bad for Ratzinger. Uh, I personally don't like the fact that he was the enemy of the Vatican II reforms. Mm. Uh, he tried to uh, reverse. Uh, several attitude, you know, the Vatican II was Catholicism's great liberalizing moment mm-hmm. in recent history. Many, many of the older doctrines were dry. It, it was, it was the, it was the Catholic Church's attempt to modernize. Right. Mm. And, uh, from the very start, it was clear that Pope Benedict was going to be a more conservative pope, that he was going to try to take things back to how they had been. Uh, not all the way, of course. No, no, to, not to even close. To push it close. in that direction. But uh, was there a subtitle, Vatican II? The- Electric Boogaloo. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's the one I was thinking of. Vatican II. This time they're pissed. <laughs> this time they're not so pissed. They're kind of tolerant. An example of this was um, in April t- 2012. The Pope gives his pre-Easter sermon at the Vatican and uses it to denounce disobedience in the church uh, and basically publicly called out and attacked reform-minded priests. Uh, people were pushing thing- for things like the ordination of women, mm-hmm. the ab- uh, abolition of uh, the celibacy rules for priests, these type All of things. sensible moves that, that yeah. very much was in opposition. Reforms that would really improve the church and yeah. take care of a lot of this abuse that's going on. He uh, he seemed steadfast against. In fact, I, I would I would say he directed far more energy during his career to attacking perceived heretics yeah. 
or those on the other side doctrinally from himself than he ever did really reform, you know, trying to get these, yeah. expose these abusers or mm-hmm. take care of them. And he knew that. where they all were. He had seen the paperwork. Well, right. Yeah. Uh, some of my personal favorites in the bad category were, uh, again, accusing secularism and the, the sexual revolution for being responsible for child abuse within the Catholic Church. Oh, that yeah. was a jaw dropper. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Why are these priests abusing? Because a bunch of feminists. That That's always fun. Or in the bad category, before uh, you know, before he was for condoms in Africa, he was against it. The flip flopping <laughs> yes. aspect, um, uh, doing a lot to reinstate the idea that the Catholic Church is the one true church, mm-hmm. might be a more doctrinally sound position for the church to take. But of course, it's it's working against that kind of tolerance and interfaith dialogue that uh, that uh, the previous pope was was actually pretty good at advancing. Mm-hmm. And then finally, the ugly. Some of the stuff that we uh, have covered in numerous episodes, I'm happy to say from the start, from the very first episode of yeah. Reasonable Doubts, we were we were putting the hammer down on uh, on the Pope, and uh, and we will continue to do so with the next Pope, so whoever he may be. In our second or third episode, we talked about a confidential letter that Ratzinger, while still a cardinal had sent to every Catholic bishop. Uh, This was back in May 2001. And basically the letter said that the church retains the right to do closed-door investigations, Mm -hmm. inquiries on um, when they hear reports of child abuse. And in fact, uh, they should keep the – unless the – the idea was unless the police have already been involved, Mm -hmm. uh, they're smart enough not to get – get in the way of a actual police investigation. But if the police haven't already been co- contacted, then they were required to keep evidence confidential for up to 10 years, not after not after the event occurred, but 10 years after the victims reach adulthood. Wow. Which puts this way beyond the statute of limitations in, in, exactly. uh, in most countries. So basically – yeah, uh, and not be quiet about it the only conceivable rationale for such a thing is is to hide the reputation of the church to, pre- to preserve it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It has nothing to do with with what the best uh, and most efficient way for justice to be served. No, no, clearly, clearly was not their interest. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, you know what what was so jaw dropping to me was this came this letter came with the protections of uh, of a pontifical secret. These inv- in other words, well, that's what, I thought that was a romantic comedy. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, if somebody were to do the right thing and actually go to the authorities with this evidence, they could be excommunicated. The punishment is that severe, uh, you know. And again, in Catholic terms, excommunication is more than getting booted out of the church. It's getting it's booted damnation. out of the afterlife. Yeah. You know, uh, you, you're not. You're not uh, exactly. So yeah, <laughs> I, we didn't see any any child abusing priests excommunicated but nope. the threat was there that anyone who wanted to protect who children narked on them yeah mm-hmm. yeah um so that's in 2001 before the guys even pope i mm-hmm. uh, also before he was pope uh we know that uh ratzinger did reinstate a few uh did reinstate at least one known pedophile when he was the uh, arch he was the head of the archdiocese in munich mm-hmm. Uh, the event happened in 1980. It was uh, a, a particular priest 
had been accused of abusing several children. Uh, he'd been – he'd confessed to it. This uh, – again, the – sometimes Catholic apologists try to say, you know, he was – this happened under his watch. That doesn't mean that Ratzinger personally was negligent in his duties. I mean, you know, that's a busy job. You get a lot of requests coming across There's your desk. There's a lot of pedophiles yeah. out there. How is he supposed to <laughs> yeah, keep Yeah, how is up? he going to keep tabs on every single one? <laughs> Episode 65, Scandal, where we cover this in great detail. We talk about how the memo was on his desk. You could find documents. Yeah. This was on the agenda. That he looked at. Yeah, so he can't uh, hide in the. We know the copies that- of the memo. Uh, you know, Ratzinger agreed to transfer this guy for therapy, but he also had the memo on his desk that said that he'd quickly been reinstated and was working with children again. Mm-hmm. So I, yeah, the, there's all this effort to try to create a barrier between Ratzinger and these documents and it doesn't work. I just picture Jeremy on like one of those congressional committees where he has a document and the Pope's at a table with him. Getting sips of water and Jeremy's like, do you recognize this document? Yeah. <laughs> I'll draw your attention to the document dated February 16th. Yeah. You don't recognize the document? Because, uh, is this not a your A lot signature? of things come my way uh, on my desk. <laughs> oh, really? Really? I don't because, read them. Uh, They're like iTunes agreements. <laughs> <laughs> I don't read them all. I mean – Oh, really? Because your staff says you're a micromanager. Isn't that right, Brad? <laughs> I need some water. <laughs> Marco, please hand me some water. Marco. <laughs> <laughs> oh no! Do it more slowly. Uh, anyways, we uh, we have Ratzinger's uh, signature on another document uh, that we talked about. This a priest in California uh, who, in this situation, the priest not only molested children and many of them, he was convicted by by a mm. by a United States court of child abuse and sentenced. Uh, and on top of that, the priest himself was saying, I might do this again. Please, for the good of everyone. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Please yeah. let me be defrocked. And, uh, but that showed that he was repentant and therefore we have a letter that states, if young priests leave the priesthood so early, you know, this is going to create a lack of confidence. <laughs> In the the church, and uh, and so no, uh, unfortunately, we can't let him just let him go so easily. And of course, then the, the priest remained and uh, continued to abuse. That one, we you know, Ratzinger's signature was actually on the page. Yeah, and we uh, we joked not 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 that this was the humorous thing, but we joked about you know. Catholic apologists at that point who were basically trying to say like, oh, he just has a rubber stamp for his signature at that point. Like, oh, he just signs things without reading it. Really? I mean <laughs> that's, if, that's a defense now? If that's the level of <laughs> negligence that's going on, you know, oh, another child abuse scandal and he just uses a form letter and signs you know, signs it off, then uh, yeah. then that's a that's a problem too. Then of course the scandal that um, was all over the New York Times a couple of years ago which prompted our scandal episode, the Milwaukee Archdiocese. Mm-hmm. Uh, Reverend Lawrence C. Murphy, this monster who molested over 200 deaf children in his care over a course of decades uh, and had plenty of people in the Milwaukee Archdiocese fighting to get him defrocked. I mean, there were other priests who were aware of this abuse. This guy even molested children in the confessional. This is really the nightmare. Yeah. Uh, 
there's no reason why they should have kept a guy like this. Yeah. Not like the confessional makes it worse, but you, you know what I mean. It's it's even to people who only care about doctrine and not about right, people, you would find that uh, incredibly uh, offensive. After getting the runaround from the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith, which uh, uh, holds these canonical trials to defrock priests, Wayland, one of one of these priests who was actually fighting to get Murphy defrocked wrote a personal letter to Ratzinger, hoping a personal letter all the way to the top would finally do some good on this. And uh, and he didn't receive much of a reply. About eight years later, when it was looking like there was going to be a lawsuit, suddenly people started paying attention. And there were secret uh, canonical trials to defrock Murphy. But then Murphy wrote a personal letter to Ratzinger saying, look, I'm old. Just let me – I'm going to die soon. Just let me die with dignity. And Ratzinger dropped the defrocking okay. procedures. Okay. So, I mean, this guy's – And that's all be- before he became this pope. This is become before he becomes pope. Yeah. And again, he is the – he was – before he was pope, he was the head of this congregation of the doctrine of the faith from 1981 to 2005 – uh, the statement that was made earlier on this podcast that he knows who all the pedophiles are is probably accurate. Yeah. I mean, he's in the best position to be seeing these documents from around the world. At least up until, what, 2005 so, when he yeah. became the Pope. He I was, simply yeah. don't buy the line that he's this great reformer. He might have yeah. made modest steps in the right direction to curta- curtail these abuses, but nothing, you know, nothing way back. He personally yeah. could have done more, more than anyone else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He could have. Done these things way back in 1980. He should have, mm-hmm. you know, the very first time one of these came across his desk, he should have said, "No, we're not. We're not transferring them to another parish. We're transferring them to a jail cell." Yep. Yeah, that would have been a reformer. That's what a reformer looks like. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ratzinger didn't pass that bar. So, uh, so yeah, I'm. Uh, I, I'm. I'll be sad that we don't have him to kick around anymore. But uh, I'm hoping the church can move on and maybe they'll get somebody next time around who's not a creep. He's going to take these issues seriously. Oh, I forgot one thing. Um, ex, excommunicating Holocaust deniers. Totally forgot oh, that one. Yeah. That wasn't important. But anyways, mm. I thought I'd give that a honorable mention. Mm. Well, so long, you horrid old bastard. Um, I, for one, am not sorry to see him go, and I'm glad to see that he will be in a position of absolutely no power. But... It's important to note that while his um, resigning is historically significant, this is not the first time a pope has resigned from office. Um, in fact, it's not even the first time a Pope Benedict has resigned from office. Uh, interestingly, go, you go back to uh, 964 <laughs> – Way, way back. When you have 2,000 years of history, you have a chance for almost anything to happen. Um, Pope Benedict V um, reigned for a month and was deposed in favor of the anti-pope Leo VIII. Um, He retained rank as a deacon after that. And then in uh, 1032, Pope Benedict IX became pope, uh, leaving office in 1044, coming back in 1045 – Leaving later that year it's and like coming Grover, back again Grover Cleveland coming back in yeah, 1047 <laughs> until 1048. And Pope Benedict the Ninth is um, is an interesting character. He is known as the first primarily gay pope. And I Pri- love primarily, primarily gay. gay. <laughs> yes, the first primarily gay 
He's, Hope. He's the first to score more than a three on the Kinsey scale. <laughs> yes. Is that what we're saying? <laughs> um, and this guy was uh, 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 primarily gay. <laughs> he uh, define attracted to. <laughs> define that term. One of one of the worst popes as far as his uh, behavior in office, um, his moral behavior, I suppose, uh, beyond being gay, which uh, I certainly don't recognize as immoral, but the Catholic Church has something to say about it. Um, he's accused of having uh, made the Vatican or that he looked like, quote, a demon from hell in the disguise of a priest and that he was, quote, feasting on immortality or immorality. Um, really um, not well liked. He abdicated once. A new pope came in. He got sick of retirement, so he came back as pope, abdicated once, again. Once you pope, you can't stop. I- exactly. Stepped down again, came back a third time, and He's then like finally Leno. sold off the papacy in in the great tradition of popes. Sold off the papacy. How much does the papacy and finally go for retired? It? But uh, so uh, not only did Pope Benedict V and Pope Benedict the Ninth uh, step down, but most notably, probably the one who followed the the model, or that uh, our current Benedict is following the model of the most is Celestine V, who actually um, was a very young pope, came into office, was in office for about six months, uh, was really not prepared for the job. So basically what he's known for doing is establishing canons for papal resignation and then resigning. (laughs) (laughs) It's okay for popes to resign, by the way. (laughs) If they made me pope, that's what I would do. All right. All right. Why did we got, what rules do we need for me to leave? We got them. All right. See ya, mofos. (laughs) Six months in office and he resigned. Afterwards, he was imprisoned by his successor and then later was in fact canonized as a, a saint. So wouldn't it be great on February 28th when uh, the Pope steps down if we had a kind of uh, half-baked moment where he's, uh, you suck, you suck, you suck, you're cool. (laughs) Oh, that would be fantastic. Um, But then, of course, the most recent time that a Pope stepped down was in 1415, you know, recently, 1415, with Pope Gregory the 12th. Is that um, the same year that Henry V fought at the Battle of Agincourt for the Shakespeare play Henry V? It is. Why, yes, it is, Luke. Is know. it the same year? I thought it was 1415. It might be. I know it's it's Into the breach and all that. Fast yeah, forward yeah. to a modern-day parking garage. Oh, that's that's no, that's him, Richard the Third. Oh God, yes, yeah. <laughs> After that, uh, I didn't, I didn't put that together. But you might be exactly right about that. Listeners, correct me. You've always wanted to. Yeah, absolutely. Gosh, Justin, your knowledge of British monarchs is so substantial. <laughs> the rest of the podcast. Oh, I love that Richard. So the III embarrassed though. for him right now. Um, but this is this is interesting because Gregory's stepping down was very different than Pope Benedict the Sixteenth saying, "I'm old. I have to quit." Gregory was actually ending what was 40 years of multiple popes in office. Um, and because most of you are probably not familiar with this period in history, what it's was an it? old Roman tradition to have many different people <laughs> fighting for the that's, same that's throne. That's very true. Um, I thought I'd do a brief history of what got Sorry, us joke. to the point <laughs> of the three popes and how it was resolved. Um, 
for approximately 70 years, the seat of the papacy was not in Rome like we typically think of but was in Avignon, France. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gregory XI managed to bring it back to Rome in 1377 um, but of course there was still considerable power in France because for 70 years that had been the seat of the papacy. So a lot yeah. of the bishops were still there. Part of that has to do with France. France really was the first area to uh, – with the the reforms of Cluny to really create the structure and hierarchy of the church as we're aware of it. Like exactly. The yep. Catholic Church becomes, uh, becomes an international institution – uh, really as a result of those sets of reforms. So it's not surprising that power might be centralized in, in that area to begin with. Right, right. Well, after Gregory XI died, the cardinals gathered in Rome and elected new pope uh, Urban VI, who um, was Italian but had served in Avignon, so he was connected to both of the, the factions there. Uh, during the conclave, which ultimately elected him, there was considerable political unrest in Rome. People were very loudly voicing um, who they wanted to see as the pope, and there were riots and all that, despite uh, uh, Urban VI being a fairly pious guy prior to the election. At least that's a, according to uh, Catholicpedia. Uh, after he became Pope Urban VI, he was a right bastard. Um, he was physically abusive to his cardinals. Um, he was just a nasty guy. So, Pope Miscavige. So <laughs> he became very unpopular and was so na- nasty that many of the cardinals publicly repudiated his election, which is kind of unheard of, blaming the political unrest around the conclave, saying, oh, there was, you know, so much going on around us. We made a mistake. And thus, in Avignon, another conclave was held and Clement VII became pope as well. So now we have Two different popes. We have one in France. We have one in Rome. For 40 years, this went on, um, and of course, it led to considerable trouble for the Catholic Church, not theologically so much as politically. None of this was about theology. It was all uh, about political alliances. Both popes had successors, which leads us to 1410 with Benedict Thirteenth in Avignon and Gregory Twelfth in Rome. In 1410, one of the many attempts to reconcile the two sides led to the election of a third pope, Alexander V of Pisa. So rather than getting rid of one of the two popes or coming together, they instead elected a third guy. (laughs) So all three popes refused to cede their power to the other until 1415 uh, when John XXIII of Pisa, Alexander V's successor, called for the Council of Constance. At the council, anti-pope John XXIII, as he's called, and anti-pope Benedict XIII of Avignon were deposed, and Gregory the Second or Gregory the Twelfth agreed to resign, or at least a representative for him agreed to the terms. Gregory wasn't there, and more likely was not all that hip on this resignation, but it was forced upon him. The council then elected Martin V because Martins have never caused trouble for the Catholic Church (laughs) who restored power to Rome once and for all and everything has been perfectly fine with the Catholic Church ever since. But there's another side to this story too. There's a, a, a dimension to it that brings in another important historical figure, Luke. Why don't you tell us about, um, 
the guy who served as what was it, scribe to John the Twenty Third, scribe and personal secretary. Yes, this was a story. I, if you're maybe some listeners are like me, I sort of glaze over when I hear all the Catholic Church hierarchy because it's you know so far removed from humanist secular type yeah. people. It's like you know. Wow, who cares? But I recently actually came upon a, a book and some interviews uh, by a guy named Stephen, written by Stephen Greenblatt, and he wrote a book the called Shakespeare Scholar. The, yes, he Love is, him. and he wrote a book called The Swerve. He talked about uh, the historical precedents of several different threads pulled together. One of which was this: how this po- uh, papal conclave in Constance brought together all these popes in the church history, but it also sort of projected onto the uh, uh, a confluence of events that allowed a recovery of some humanistic materials uh, that had been lost out of circulation for a thousand years from mm. the ancient Greeks. And like you mentioned, one of the secretaries to the Pope from Pisa was a guy named Paggio Broccolini, and he was a Actually, he was the secretary for seven different, six or seven different popes. Mm-hmm. And so he had a lot of experience in the church hierarchy, but he was what we, and this was what part that interested me, that there was groups of people that were essentially Christian humanists. So they weren't exactly analogous to stone cold atheists. Right. But they were humanists in the sense that what they thought was important was things like the, the humanities, classical literature, Greek, Latin, and that they uh, were like um, Petrarch were interested in bringing back the classics as being sort of a golden age of learning, and that they actually were very cynical about the church. So they had stories about you know Pope. They got to see all this stuff firsthand that you just talked about, all the stabbing and nastiness right. and backbiting. Clearly, from their point of view, this was a human institution, and it wasn't as if they de- denied God's existence, but they thought that this was just a cesspool of vice. But what they thought sort of saved. People was intellectual nerdy pursuits, and what Paggio did was he was a book hunter, and so by being freed up, his, his boss basically was incarcerated. Right. After the conclave didn't go well for his John boss. the twenty third uh, ends up on the wrong end. So of he's an Italian speaking yeah. guy up there in Germany, and, and you know on the border with Switzerland. What do I do? That I'm going to go to these old monasteries that have book collections, and he what he was good at was going through these places and. Uh, cajoling or charming the, the abbot librarians, whatever, to let them thumb through the stacks. You know, and which wasn't an easy task because, you know, we, we like to badmouth the church, but one thing it did do was preserve the literature from the ancient world, a lot yeah. of the stuff that had been burned down and, you know, uh, the, these, of course they burned some of it down. They, too. they did it. <laughs> they did it themselves. It wasn't, they saved and it's like what Homer says of alcohol as being the cause of and solution to problems. <laughs> it was the Catholic church was both the cause of the degradation of classical literature and it's uh, and, and salvation. It. And but, place, uh, yeah. in these libraries stashed away with the Christian texts and all the Bible scripture things were copies of copies of copies of classical literature that had been gone out of circulation. So being a, a classicist, what Paggio liked to do was go in there and, you know, to him and his homies, it was a bit being book sluts. They like to save, they like to save their, well, that's what book sluts are, aren't they? Yeah, so they yeah. good off. Wasn't Jeremy a book slut when he worked at the bookstore? Yes, yes, I am. So, so that's what the term is. That's I have a, a, I have a Kindle. I can be a digital book slut. Yes. Oh, that's great. So for what is better? Cyber book slut. If you are yeah. a classic scholar, what is a better thing to do, what is more prestigious than to announce to your friends that you've just recovered a manuscript that's been out of circulation. So a lot of our – if you look up, he has a whole string of fines. 
of all these things that he discovered. And then he, he was also known for being a very uh, beautiful and legible uh, handwriter. He's, he would write down because they didn't have Xerox machines. If the monks couldn't do a good job, he would do it himself or have somebody do it, copy him down. So what he stumbled upon when he was in Germany, and this was the point of the, the, the Swerve book by Greenblatt, is he stumbled upon in the list of, of a monastery uh, a book by Lucretius the uh, who wrote in Latin who was uh, about lived around the year 50 BCE before the common era so mm-hmm. he would have been you know uh, uh, right there before the time of Jesus and he was an epicurean and so Pajo immediately recognized this book by Lucretius called De Rerum Natura or on the nature of things. Mm-hmm. We had refer- he knew that there was references to this in other works where people might have mm-hmm. a scrap here or there of, hey, that's like Lucretius said in right. this. Or he was, you know, this is the idea of Epicurus. So it was a very As, popular book. It would have been quoted it in was, a lot of places. But. So he knew immediately when he saw this, holy crap, other people are, have referenced this, but we've, he thought it was lost to time. Mm-hmm. So he sort of says, hey, can I, uh, make a copy of this? And then he sent it along to his friends who made a copy and made a copy and put it back into circulation. And what Greenblatt's argument is, is that this manuscript actually contained ideas that contributed to what I guess we would now think of as modernity and the Renaissance. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was what was so big about Lucretius and Epicureanism? It was that it was a naturalistic worldview. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Jeremy knows something about the philosophy of this. Yes. Well, I was just I didn't even think of this until now, but my uh, my capstone historiography course for my uh, for my bachelor's degree, I wrote a paper on. Not specifically this situation, but I was uh, – because it had to be an original piece of research and everybody's – you know, this has been thoroughly researched by others. But uh, I tried to connect the the uh, birth of European pantheism, uh, mm. tracing it back to books like this. Uh, Lucretius works, some surviving things from Democritus and others were edited by the Irish freethinker John Toland into a book called The Panatheisticon. Which he wanted to start, uh, he basically wanted to start a secular church out of, um, or a, a church that basically worshiped the universe as being God. But yeah, Lucretius is pretty good read. I haven't read it for a while, but very naturalistic. It is, takes the form of, of poetry, but it also contains, I guess it's what you'd call didactic poetry. It contains a lot of teaching and a lot of argumentation in it. So you'll it's sort of written to to uh, to convince somebody of right. here's these ideas and why they're important and why and why you shouldn't be scared of things like death, gods, right. stupid yeah. superstition, hoo ha. Right. Uh, there's there's arguments in there for why the soul he accepts the soul for for instance, but why the soul is actually made out of material, why there's no way that it could possibly survive the death of the body, so why it would be reabsorbed. Yeah. There's void, and that's yeah, isn't it. Isn't he yeah. one of the first uh, proponents of that idea? Well, uh, not, Lucretius. not Lucretius. I think but Democritus was one of the okay. atomists that said there's yes. atoms, and then Epicurus sort of blended that in with a philosophy, and Lucretius is one of that yes. school okay. of atomists. Lucretius is popularizing Epicurus at a time where it's, it's really 
really trendy to hate Epicureans and to see them as the kind of Epicureanism as the spawn of all evil. Yeah, I mean they, they would they would have smear campaigns. Right. What we would think of as like my first association with Epicurean was pleasure seeking, as in you roll around in pools of right, sex and right. food all day and right. vomit. And they started rumors that Epicurus was like a glutton and had no morals. And the same with Lucretius. But then yeah. you realize these were ideas planted uh, sort of to smear that because they couldn't wrap their mind around if pleasure is the end point of life or mm. the, the reduction of pain right. then there's you know what does that do to things like obedience to rulers to gods to you know to well, right. what would hold you in check it's the same thing the atheists deal with now what would hold you in check if you're just in it for your pleasure right, right. yeah some of the most memorable passages i think for atheists to come out of lucretius are definitely his screeds on religion where he he cites religion as the source of a lot of human misery. Yeah, it's, and it and, wasn't as if he specifically was an atheist. He didn't deny the existence of gods, but he didn't think – he was kind of like a deist almost that like they didn't involve themselves mm-hmm. with passion. Right. Like they, the, the notion that they would took it – that they cause anything or that they would involve themselves with puny humans. Or that just, the gods themselves are made of atoms to some degree yeah. and, and that they are you know, they are subject to the same natural laws that mm-hmm. the rest of us are. And, uh, which you can see coming out of uh, Greek and Roman mythology real easily mm-hmm. is that well, they're very yeah. human gods. Epicurus's message very... was we just shouldn't care. Uh, yeah. you, you know, it's it's the gods may be out there and doing something, but they're not they're not really responsible in any way. They're not affecting our lives, so why bother? So there's this kind of liberation and not being afraid of them. I think what we should do on this show, maybe this we could treat this as a kind of first installment. I was thinking we could start a new segment on the show, which is, you know, doubt in literature or mm-hmm. doubt in the arts, uh, because there's a lot of great work out there from contemporary authors and ancient ones mm-hmm. that uh, are really powerful and even moving statements uh, supporting naturalism or free thinking and that sort of thing. And mm-hmm. Lucretius Send in your, is one of the earliest, suggestions, so, ladies and gentlemen. So I'll uh, I'll attempt a reading of uh, a couple brief portions from On the Nature of Things. Do it in Latin. No. Oh. <laughs> I'm, and I wanted to believe also, I'm not, I don't speak Latin, I don't know anything about classics, that his Latin was particularly fluent and blended together the science, the, the, nat- the precision of the yeah. ideas with poetry as well. well and, and, made it poetic. and also, too, a little saucy and sarcastic. He's kind of a satirist and, and uh, goes to great lengths to mock and humiliate other philosophical viewpoints. He's. He really does fit in well. well. He's kind of a perfect ancient analog to our stereotype of the angry atheist, right? Calling, calling out religion and uh, mocking and stating things in sometimes overly hyperbolic terms. We would never do that. Though. No, no, never. Uh, here's a, for example, here's a passage on uh, the triumph of reason over religion. And uh, it alludes to this Greek man who I think is either Democritus or Epicurus. I can't quite tell from the text. But uh, when in full view on the earth man's life lay rotting and loathsome, crushed neath the ponderous load of religion's cruel burdensome shackles, who out of heaven displayed her forehead of withering aspect, lowering over the hands of mortals with hideous menace, upraising mortal eyes, t'was a Greek who first daring defied her against man's restless foe, t'was man first framed to do battle. It's, it's tough reading Lucretius. Yeah. <laughs> Him could nor tales of the gods nor heaven's fierce thunderbolts crashes curb, nay, rather they inflamed his spirit's keen courage to covet. His it should first be to shiver the close-bolted portals of nature. 
Therefore, his soul's live energy triumphed and far and wide compassed the world's walls, blazing lights, and the boundless universe traversed, thought-winged. From realms of space, he comes back victorious and tells us what we may, what we must not perceive, what laws, what universal limits the ken of each, what deep set boundary and landmark, then how... In turn, underfoot religion is hurled down and trampled. Then how that victory lifts mankind to a high level of heaven. So, you know, again, reason stepping in, liberating mankind and this kind of bold, bold Greek here who throws off religion and then is able to discover all the mysteries of the cosmos. I, I think the census literalis of that text is probably speaking of Epicurus, but I think the – the author's real intent was probably Carl Sagan. We are the stuff of Adams, and that is all. Oh gosh, that was I mangled that so badly that I think I only want to do one more. Uh, there was a translation that was made that uh, back in the 1800s that did it into poetry rhyming, like into, couplets. Well, I forget the, the guy's name, but, but the it, one in the Greenblatt book that they talk about is in. Pros. Yeah, uh, yeah, and so you could see that they rhyme at the end of yeah. it where somebody – I don't know how much they had to change the meaning of it, but they tried yeah. to make it to match its original poetic aspect in Latin where right. the things would sort of lie, rhyme and go off the – roll off the tongue more. Here's another passage from book one of Lucretius. Now this terror and darkness of mine must surely be scattered, not by the rays of the sun nor by the gleaming arrows of daylight, but by the outward display and unseen workings of nature. And her first rule for us – from this premise shall take its beginning. Never did the will of gods bring anything forth out of nothing. For in good sooth it is thus that fear restraineth all mortals, since both in earth and sky they see that many things happen, whereof they cannot by any known law determine the cause. So their occurrence they ascribe to supernatural power. Therefore, when we have seen that naught can be made out of nothing, Afterwards, we shall be more rightly to discern the things which we search for, both out of what is, that everything can be created, and what way all came, without the help of gods, into being. So a, a little bit of atheism there, but of then, of course, the, the idea that these superstitions come about because we simply don't understand the laws of nature that, are, that underpin things. So Pretty smart guy. Yeah, way ahead of his time. Way ahead of his time. Yeah, well, and then the, the, there was a time like that a long time ago, and then it sort of was buried under, and it went dormant. You know, and this is what I think that when you realize that it's easy, you read about these boring sort of history things about here's the dark ages, we don't know much, monks, monasteries, but I think this kind of story shows that there first that there were people a lot like us a couple thousand years ago and that there were even people like us in the church hierarchy that wanted that yeah, a guy that who valued worked it. for what six or seven popes that, who maybe didn't necessarily agree with everything Lucretius was writing but but valued it and like thought you it said. was worthy of discussion yeah. and actually uh, what Paggio was known for actually other than this was a book of very body and ribald stories he was known for it it's, I think it's called I don't know how to pronounce it but but basically it's like a joke book and so if you can Google and get some of these jokes, they have this traditional like there's these, you know, the Randy priest and friar, the the country rube who gets taken advantage of, is the wife who wants sex all the time. They're actually pretty crude. I couldn't find a lot that I could repeat, you know, the, the funnier ones that I could actually repeat on the air. And and this and Pajo compiled these together and one of his ways to charm people was to tell them the stories. Did you hear the one about the 
the man who let the <laughs> priest sleep with his wife because he thought his child would be the pope or you know <laughs> what <laughs> and so you know there's this crew of these people like this that saved class yeah. a lot of classical literature so that we could have it by just simply being into books and yeah. copying them and then hey read this pass this along make a copy and then send it to somebody else and now we have these ideas preserved it's kind of a fun little tale on how uh, organized religion is its own worst enemy too right were it not for all these abuses and scandals and infightings and everything else you know Paggio might have not he may have never found it because well, he, he, he would he never also, been in the position to find it. It's funny because he also made fun of the people that he had to deal with in the church and the monasteries even though he relied on them for his books because he would be like – apparently it was the thing back then if you had a stupid son or somebody who wasn't promising, set him off to be a monk. What damage could he do there? He will pray all day. And so Pajo used to write these things of complaining about these people can barely you know, understand these ideas but they copy books. Just be nice to them. Walk in and say, "Oh, what a nice monastery! Can I see your index and make you know get do what you have to do to get the freaking Latin and Greek books copied and get and get them out of the monastery where they're going to huh. go you know du- turn into dust and mold if I don't rescue them." Thanks, Paggio. Yeah, thank you, Paggio. <laughs> Absolutely, and it's you know you see people like that all through history and through all across the world where a single person helped preserve these classics and or promulgate certain ideas it's, that it's we very, would have lost otherwise. It's very infrequently that you can make an argument that the intervention of a single person you know saved an entire canon of of literature that we do because you you're you're into playwrights and things like that you know like Aeschylus and Sophocles mm-hmm. we don't have the majority of their right. plays right in fact the only ones we have are because um the it, they preserved them in Byzantium the, the Byzantines the uh, held on to – they liked these particular plays, which is why those are the ones we Or have. another place that they, that they actually found some of this – this is mentioned in the book The Swerve too – is that when they finally dug their way down into the uh, Vesuvius eruption place that was uh, Pompeii, Pompeii, like Herculaneum yeah. that was buried, mm. they got, dug their way through all these concretized volcanic ash and they found a library. Wow. I didn't and they that. started like scrubbing the, the crap off the, all the charcoal and they found it was like, what are these things that look like briquettes? They were actually – Using them in the 1800s to burn to keep warm on the dig, and they realized when they broke them open, it's books. Oh, and they started going through. They they were in a library, and they found a way to unroll these without shattering the papyrus. And there was a, another copy Amazing. of Lucretius. Huh. Holy cow! Wow. That's awesome. Well, and that's going to mostly do it for us this week. Um, until our next episode, you can write to us at doubtcast at gmail I'd love to see your suggestions for um, uh, doubt. In the arts, doubt in literature, uh, etc. So send those to us, doubtcast at gmail.com. Check out our YouTube page, our Facebook page, our Twitter, all slash doubtcast, and of course our website, doubtcast.org. We will be back soon with more Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion, but here we leave you today with an audio montage tribute to Pope Benedict the Sixteenth. Enjoy. On April 19, 2005, crowds gathered in St. Peter's Square to cheer his elevation, and he could have been in no doubt as to how crucial the timing of his papacy was. Pope Benedict said, uh, was recorded to have said that he didn't really want the job of Pope and what a time uh, to have been in that position, fending off scandal after scandal. 
shape of all, I express my deep sorrow. It was under Benedict's tenure that the pedophile scandal truly erupted worldwide. But but don't worry, it's not his fault. It's the fault of secularism, therapy, the sexual revolution, his underlings, demons, and of course, the victims themselves. There was a great story on March 4th about uh, gay prostitutes yeah. in the heart of the Vatican. It's like they write our shows for us. We don't even have to do anything. We just, just just read the headlines and we don't even have to do any work. Now, its time at the Vatican has been marred by a string of scandals, hasn't it? Yeah. Ach, ach, I have so many documents on desk. Get my rubber stamp. But some of the accusations were aimed at the Pope himself and his time as Archbishop of Munich. Questions arose over how much he'd known about cases of priest pedophiles reported in his own diocese. Well, it depends on what the meaning of ist is. <laughs> Break me down with all of your hatred, and your journey towards the dark side will be complete. Pope Benedict is the bizarro version of King Midas. Everything he touches turns to crap. <laughs> He has said today, uh, I do not have the mental and the physical strength anymore to continue my duties. up on past Reasonable Doubts episodes or to email your questions or comments, check out www.doubtcast.org. Reasonable Doubts is a production of WPRR Reality Radio. You can find out more about Reality Radio at publicrealityradio.org. Reasonable Doubts theme music is performed by Love Fossil and used with permission. <laughs>